welcome to Vine Pair, the podcast about the conversations we have with a glass in hand. From New York, I am Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And today we're going to talk about bartender's choice. This idea that you walk into a cocktail bar and basically tell the mixologist, make me what you want to make me. And uh, Zach, I hear you brought us a special guest. I did. Well, I figured, you know, I have a little bit of a past as a bartender, but I, I figured who better in the Seattle bar scene to talk to about this than the beverage director at Hartwood Provisions, also my boss, and a close personal friend, Amanda Reed. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, happy to be here. So let's start really quick with this sort of idea of bartender's choice. And I know you and your past uh, bartending experiences have definitely worked in bars that really focused at least in some part on this whole idea. As a bartender, how did you view that? What is what was your when someone either directly ordered that or sort of said, "Oh, just make me something." How how do you what is that what is that prompt in you? Well, I think it's definitely a very generic way to order to start. So, um, you know, we as bartenders need to gather more information, uh, figure out what it is that they're looking for, um, whether it be, you know, a, a lighter uh, vodka or gin base with some citrus or, you know, on the, uh, you know, more boozy side, whiskey forward, scotch, whatever. I mean, the, the range is quite vast. So um, gathering some information, which, you know, can be challenging. And a lot of times people don't always know how to describe what they like. So, you know, even just asking them cocktails that they enjoy, um, what they usually drink, you know, can kind of give us a hint. So, uh, you know, just trying to like figure out what it is that they're looking for. You know, of course, my least favorite thing to hear is, you know, just make me what you like, <laughs> you know, it's probably not going to be the same thing that they're looking for. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's all about trying to like hone in on the details when it comes to this style of ordering. And do you find that people... When they say kind of like, oh, just make me something or make me what you like or whatever, are they really expecting you to create a brand new cocktail on the fly? Because to me, whenever I had that question posed to me and I didn't bartend as nearly as seriously as you did, I essentially did one of two things. I was either like, okay, what's a classic cocktail that this person probably hasn't tried and I could make it for them and be like, yeah, this is a classic and you may be not familiar with it. Or alternatively, classic cocktail with a twist where we're going to swap out, you know, one ingredient for something similar. And that was essentially the extent of what I and I think most bartenders are capable of doing. But is it your was it your sort of understanding and your um, sense that, that guest expectations were like you were going to just magically conjure a whole new drink out of nothing? Uh, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, if you work in a place, you know, similarly um, to like where I've worked, uh, Needle and Thread, just down the street uh, here in Capitol Hill, um, you know, that's the style of bartending that, you know, is expected. Um, I think if you're in a restaurant environment or in a cocktail bar where there is a cocktail menu, um, it can be a little bit of an obscure way to order Um you know, I do think that the whole idea that every bartender is capable of creating some magical new drink on the fly in that very moment is a little far-fetched. But, you know, I do think that, you know, most experienced bartenders have a number of drinks that they can go to and refer to, whether it be uh, spins on classics or original creations, but that sort of just fit in the basic categories of what people are usually looking for. So it kind of comes back to that point of, you know, just trying to gather as many details about what it is that they're looking for as possible and then going from there. So. Well, so with you being obviously on the the side of the bar making the drinks, do you think that sometimes bartender's choice or asking those kinds of questions is the the guest trying to 
I don't know, show you that they're cool or that they're in the know, trying to make some kind of connection with you that's different than just I'll take the old fashioned. I think what we find a lot with readers is trying to say, how do I, how do I make a connection with the bartender or make them know like, Hey, I'm really into, I'm really into cool cocktails. Um, and oftentimes one of the questions, one of the things that we hear from the reader is, so I tell them just make me what you like because I want them to know that I, I want to try everything because I think that they're awesome. And if it's not that, question they were to ask, what would you suggest they say to you? Um, or how would you suggest that they sort of come across as a, as someone who is trying to signal, I'm really into cocktails and I want to know more about them and I want to drink, I guess, what's, what's special here? Sure. I mean, I think as an aficionado um, or someone who's interested in cocktails, uh, I think you know, engaging with the bartender, even if it's just a classic they're looking for, is a, a little bit of a better approach. Um, mm-hmm. Again, like there's a varied degree at which bartenders have experience with um, crafting cocktails, uh, you know, on the fly or even just making original cocktails to begin with. So it could be um, a bit of a vague order. And also, um, I don't know that it necessarily exercises any amount of curiosity as it does just sort of kind of not really maybe even reading the menu. I mean, it sort of just takes the, you know, uh, maybe what that bar does really well out of the picture. Um, You know, I know Zach and I have talked in the past about, you know, is it better to just order off the menu because you know those cocktails are dialed in and you know they're complex and balanced and they've been tested and as opposed to doing this whole roulette thing i do think it does have benefit if you're in front of the right bartender but you you don't always know that that's going to be the case even in the best of establishments so it's yeah i mean it's it's kind of a it's a tough way to order cocktails (laughs) i also (laughs) I also think it's a situation, and Amanda kind of alluded to this, where a decade ago, if you went to a bar, a cocktail bar, and they had that on the menu, you could probably be pretty confident that the people working in that bar really knew what they were doing because there weren't a lot of bars a decade ago that had the sort of dealer's choice, roulette, whatever, um, as an option because it required a degree of knowledge and sophistication and skill on the part of the bartenders, and most bars are not comfortable with that. And now I think people assume in general that they are – anyone who's behind a bar, even if it's just a – a pretty standard restaurant, let alone, um, you know, a place that may not really emphasize cocktails. They, there's still this sort of perception that every bartender is a mixologist at heart, and that if the bar, if the guest just gives them this chance to to shine, that they will make some, you know, mind blowingly great cocktail. And just frankly, that's not true. I mean, I don't mean to belittle the community. Bartenders do an amazing job, but a lot of them are best at making a lot of the same drink quickly. Like that's a lot of what the job requires, I think. And so the few and the the ones who are out there who are really creative are great. But even though you know, a, a drink is really best, in my opinion, when it has been perfected, when it's been tested and tasted and made and measured, and then it's made that way to order, as opposed to improvised. Because for every great success that comes out of improvisation, there's a lot of mediocre drinks that go across a bar. Well, and I do think that it has become sort of a diluted concept. I was actually just in Boston at a very high profile cocktail bar. Um, and that it's a medium-sized place, um, larger than, you know, Needle and Thread or some of these like smaller speakeasy style bars. And that was their concept, which um, I didn't totally realize. And, you know, I kind of gave them some parameters. Um, I saw this great tiki cocktail across the way that was being lit on fire. And I'm like, tiki sounds cool. I like Jamaican rum, not too sweet. I mean, I know how to order it. Uh, and he gave me a classic cocktail that I'm very familiar with that I've had a million times. And I was actually kind of disappointed because I would have so much rather had enjoyed either a new creation or having a menu that I could have then 
picked a cocktail off of and, you know, had a more interesting experience with it. It kind of this topic came up and I was like, oh, yeah, that that comes to mind because it did sort of like disappoint me a little bit. Yeah, so, I mean, I have to say from my limited experience of of going to bars with this, almost every time that I've done it, I've been really disappointed. Um, and I've never done it on my own, just walked into a bar that has a list and said, hey, make me what you want to make me. But when that's their vibe, I've done it. Um, and I've also gotten a lot of these you know, classic cocktails as like, oh, yeah, I I have Negronis. You know, I didn't need uh, your version of a white Negroni. If that's what you were going to make me, I would have told you that I wasn't interested in it. But so who do you think is to blame for this? Is it partly the patron or do you think a lot of bars are doing this sort of almost as a crutch to say, hey, walk on in here. And this is a very quick way for us to make you think we're cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a very hip you know, approach. And it's sort of just, you know, like so many drink trends, you know, it starts in these couple exclusive places that everyone thinks is really cool. And, you know, they do a really great job at it. They've got the right people behind it. And then, you know, everybody sort of jumps on the bandwagon. So um, and I don't, you know, I do think it can be done well. And I've um, been very, you know, I've also had great experiences in this regard. But again, it, it kind of comes back to, you know, who that bartender in front of you is. And, you know, if, you know, not everybody has it, it's sort of a talent, not necessarily a skill. So, you know, if everybody in in every cocktail bar across America is trying to make these drinks, you know, off the cuff, it's not always gonna wow. So I also think a big part of it, too, is that the sort of generally held understanding of what, like the classic cocktail compendium or whatever is has really greatly expanded. Like, you know, just the fact that Adam, you were like, oh, you know, I'm familiar with a white Negroni. I'm good. Like, I don't need that. Is a sign that, like, there aren't a lot of places left for bartenders to go. There just aren't that many delicious combinations of spirits, even in an environment where there are more spirits on the market all the time. In the end, it it almost has caused me to come back to the true classics because, in the end, like, you can make variant X on cocktail Y, but Oftentimes, the original is the original and the best for good reason. And obviously, there are variants that have come to their own prominence, and sometimes it is because things are available that did not used to be. But I think, you know, just the average person who goes into a cocktail bar really seeking a craft cocktail probably knows a lot of the tricks that the bartender is going to deploy anyhow. There's There's not a lot left to sort of wow someone with unless they're pretty new to it. And there's just not a, you know, more people than ever are familiar with a lot of this sort of either specific cocktails or sort of techniques that maybe, again, five, 10 years ago in a lot of markets would have been new. So I I also think that like another thing to think about in this whole thing is that there's been a maybe a loss of not identity, a loss of sort of understanding of what the point of um, a cocktail bar is. And I think, again, it's there's something about this whole like dealer's choice or whatever cocktail ordering that really cuts against to me what I think is an important part of the cocktail bar, which is that, um, and Amanda alluded to this earlier, that they have sort of Mm -hmm. a discrete identity and that they have things that they do well. And that if you go to any given cocktail bar in any given city, you know, there's probably a number of them and they have different specialties, whether it's a specific spirit or a style of drink, or maybe it's a vibe. And if you walk in there and you don't, you're not interested in what they're offering, you know, maybe that's a sign that you should go somewhere else instead of sort of asking the bartender to make something that's out of their, their general sphere of, of style. Yeah. I mean, so I'm, I'm actually curious as we're talking about the people that have sort of started this style. I mean, who would you say are the bars were sort of responsible for this style in the first place? Um, and who are places, if someone was still trying to go to a place that does this dealer's choice idea well, what are some of those places? 
Amanda, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, but off the top of my head, I think it, it owes a lot of, or there's a lot of overlap between sort of what I think of as speakeasy bar culture and this style. There was some, there's something about that kind of hidden bar, uh, or, you know, you kind of have to know where it is. I mean, obviously some of them have more actual secrecy to them than others, but that, that style that, you know, I envision as emerging kind of in New York, um, and then spreading very quickly around the, the country and around the world, really, as being, uh, the progenitor of this, you know, it's the, it's that combination of two things, the hidden bar and the bartender not as the person who gives you a drink, but as sort of this, you know, creative wizard who can just conjure anything magical at a moment's uh, notice. And, you know, I don't even know that you could, I, I would be interesting to trace in, you know, at some point, the sort of where did this first really become a thing? What bars really pioneered this? But I, that's the that's the sort of atmosphere in which I picture this first emerging. And it became, and it's still, I think, where that is still carried on, that sort of that speakeasy vibe. You know, um, uh, Amanda mentioned a former bar of hers, Needle and Thread, here in Seattle. I think if you look at the sort of still speakeasy model bar, that's where I would sort of expect to see this more than in a more um, know, conventional, seems weird, but like a more conventional cocktail bar. Uh, yeah, I agree. I don't actually, I don't know if I've ever thought about like the origins of it, but um, you know, pretty much what Zach said. I mean, it's definitely New York. There was the, you know, time in the early 2000s that speakeasy bars became the thing. And, you know, mostly New York, San Francisco, um, these cocktail cultures that kind of first came onto the scene and um, did things you know, different and made fresh drinks and put creativity to it. And, you know, somewhere along the way, the the roulette cocktail concept was born. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I'm not really like, sure where it began. <laughs> do you think we can trace it back to milk and honey? Like, is it Sasha Petrovsky? That was my first initial inclination. Um, you know, it's definitely, you know, right there in that scene. I mean, early 2000s, those guys, those sort of like at this point, like our forefathers of, you know, modern cocktails, um, you know, it was it was New York all the way and, you know, San Francisco to follow Seattle, not, you know, too far behind. Um, but yeah, and I don't know if, you know, those bars even practice that anymore. I mean, um, I'm pretty sure last time I went to Milk and Honey, like it was a menu. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, a lot of these places that kind of started this movement have probably gotten away from it because it's, it's challenging. I mean, it's, um, time consuming, strenuous. It's hard to be efficient. It's hard to get drinks out quickly. Um, I know when I was, you know, in this environment, you know, I would, work with, I had a server and we would come up with a, essentially a menu uh, most of the time of drinks that fit in different categories. So we could just execute quickly, you know, for the night and we would change them. So we're not making the same thing all the time, but like we had to be strategic about it because otherwise people wait too long. If you're like sitting there thinking about it and, you know, you're not getting to all your guests, the guest engagement is gone at that point. Um, you know, there's a lot of other factors when you're bartending to you know, variables and, you know, other, other things that you need to worry about. So, you know, trying to be creative it, and it, and it's exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. I mean, it, you would do that for eight, 10 hours. It's like, you know, your brain is like jello afterward. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is actually a really a good point that Amanda raises, which is that I think a lot of the explosion of this maybe has to do with um, some specific bars, but I think it had to do with a certain kind of bar patron too, who wanted to feel like they were getting 
the 100% undivided attention of, you know, maybe in particular sort of celebrity bartenders or people in places that were notable. But it was sort of, you know, in some ways, I'm almost glad that this trend really started to emerge pre-Instagram, because I think it would have only gotten worse had it been, you know, not only do I want to be able to say, oh, I went to Bar X and the famous bartender there, they made me this drink that like no one has ever had before or that, you know, I'd never heard of. And with they, they you know, they grabbed these bottles from the top shelf or from who knows where. And it was, you know, all this sort of stuff that made people feel special. And look, I mean, part of a good bartender's job is to make their guests feel special. I don't mean to deride that at all. But I think part of it is also that, you know, there's a, a, a class of customer that really want that sense of of ownership, I guess, of their experience and of the bartender's time. And in the end, there just aren't a lot of cocktail bars that can survive with each drink being a three, four, five minute process. Like, you know, we all in the end, as much as you want a special cocktail, if it takes too long to make, or if you're the seventh person in line and you're staring at your phone wondering when the hell you're going to get a drink, like the purpose of the bar has essentially been lost. So Amanda, yeah. I'm also wondering, you know, th- that said, to come back to kind of this question of if this is going to last, which I think it will. I think there, we're not going to see a complete disappearance of this style of bartending or this style of sort of guest engagement. What are maybe in you know, Adam alluded to this earlier too, but like, what are sort of a couple of things that you think that people who are going into a cocktail bar and really want to place themselves in the bartender's hands, what should they have in mind? And maybe what are some sort of ways that they can sort of express that this is what they want without being too uh, demanding, I guess? Well, and like I mentioned before, more information you can gather, the better us as bartenders are going to be at creating a drink that you're going to enjoy. Um, so, you know, you kind of want to fill out like base spirit, citrus or no citrus, sweet, not sweet, fruit, flowers, herbs, you know, just ask them questions and try to dig to see, um, like, and, you know, at the very minimum, like, what do you usually drink, you know, and, and that can tell you a lot because, you know, again, like you said, if you're ordering, make me something in this vague way, it's really hard for, you know, that person to, to get it right. And, you know, and ultimately we do want to please our guests and we do want to give them that experience and, you know, have that, um, moment where, you know, they, they light up because, you know, the drink is like, you know, exactly what they were looking for and it's interesting and fun. And, um, you know, those are, those are certainly the, the reward to, you know, that style of bartending. And there is a lot of engagement and, you know, and if you're in a bar where you have the time to do that, like great, um, even better. Um, but there are a lot of factors. And um, yeah, I mean, I think just trying to gauge what your guests need and want and are looking for is the most important thing. And as bartenders, you know, we we try to do that regardless of whether it be the drink order or food or, you know, service. And, you know, if they want to have a conversation or they don't want to have a conversation, those are all things that we have to figure out. And so, you know, what they want to drink is, is part of it. Would you say that maybe one other strategy, and this is one that I kind of like, would be to, if you're a guest, to make the dealer's choice or whatever your second drink? So order something off the menu first, and then assuming that you want to have a second drink, maybe that's the time to ask the bartender to do something off menu that, you know, for me, that shows a certain respect for the for the establishment if they have a printed menu, of course, or some sort of menu that you can interact with, that it shows that you acknowledge that, that you want to try and see what they're doing. And it maybe gives you and your bartender sort of a starting off point where if you've ordered, you know, if you've ordered uh, Caparina as your first drink and your second drink is like, well, I'd like you to make me something that might be, they might go in one direction versus if you just ordered in Manhattan and then you ask them to make you something. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great approach. Um, 
I also think that in that environment, you know, if you order that first drink, you can also kind of gauge the ability of the bartender in, in a lot of ways. So you can kind of like determine whether or not you want to go that route. Like, is the bartender super busy? Is the bartender, you know, engaging you about the drink that you already have? Do they seem like they, you know, really know, you know, about spirits and how to mix things. I mean, there. I think in sitting at a bar and having one drink, you know, being there for 30 minutes, like you can kind of tell a lot about, you know, what the person in front of you is capable of and if, and if they have the time. And if so, then, you know, that is a great, you know, that is a great approach because, you know, it, it gives you a good gauge on things and where you want to go next. So for, for one final question uh, that you may not have an answer to, but I get asked all the time by uh, readers and other people. And so I, I try to ask it to a lot of different mixologists. Is there a drink that you think consumers could ask a bartender to make that is a good gauge of whether or not they're a good bartender? Uh, you know, an old fashioned, I think, is one. Um, how you make your old fashioned can tell a lot about, you know, is it a old school bartender? Is it a new school bartender? You know, what is their take on bitters, sweetener? It's it's such a basic and raw drink that, you know, it, it really allows you to sort of like understand what that bar has to offer. You know, if I've got like a large ice cube, that drink is stirred. There's a good balance between sweet and bitter. Um, you know, I, I might test the bartender and, you know, see if they have something to something to offer me that's, you know, a lot more interesting and fun. Yeah. And I also think what the great thing about a drink like the old fashioned too, is that you can make a pretty tolerable old fashioned really quickly and really sort of sloppily, and it's still going to taste okay. And so if that's the approach of the bartender, then yeah, it tells you a lot about the bar and a lot about the the person making the drinks. And it may be just, it's a busy bar and they, that's how they have been trained to do it. And that's how they have to do it. And they got to crank out, you know, five drinks, six drinks a minute. And that's just the deal. Whereas, you know, if they take two minutes on it and they're very thoughtful, or maybe they even do what I love, which is ask you questions like, well, what kind of spirit would you like? Do you prefer rye bourbon? Do you want brandy? How, you know, do you have a preference? You know, those are sort of the things where if you get those questions back, you get that thoughtfulness back, then again, yeah, maybe it's the place to start thinking about, okay, this is probably someone who either knows a fair bit or at least genuinely cares about my experience as a guest versus someone who's just trying to clear a ticket off their rail, which look, I, I, we've all done or, you know, service bartending is a real thing and it's important. And I don't mean to belittle that at all, but those are probably not the people you want to order uh, custom cocktails from. Cool. Well, this has been super interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so awesome. much, Amanda. And we will uh, we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is recorded in New York City at Vine Pair headquarters in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Jawal. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Cooper. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.